0: But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised have God chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who is of God, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And we, I guess we could take for another text, uh, Jonah 2.9, where Jonah said at the end of his prayer unto God at the, in the belly of the whale, salvation is of the Lord. And Really, that would be a good theme for the doctrines of grace, that salvation is of the Lord. That's a good uh, summation of it, that the Lord has chosen whom he will save, and he sees fit to, in his providence, bring those to saving faith, to bring them unto um, redemption. Salvation is of the Lord. And so tonight, I just want to sort of introduce the doctrines of grace. Um, I like to to preach a series on this every so often, just the basics of it, just the bare bones definition of the doctrines of grace because it's good to to be reminded of these precious truths and to have them settled in our minds. Um, There's a long and bloody history of faithful Christians who have held the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a long and bloody history of those who have died for their faithfulness. Certainly not all who suffered at the hands of persecutors over the truth of the gospel believe just like we do about everything, about the church and about baptism. But many who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, died the martyr's death for standing for and defending the gospel. You can go back and find testimony from the time of the apostles, um, the Waldensians and and other such uh, groups who held to um, the truths of of what we call the doctrines of grace. God's sovereignty and salvation, uh, election unto salvation. The, uh, the truth of the atonement of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ saves his people from their sins. But we don't hold to these doctrines because of a particular man or a particular group of men or any such thing. We hold to these truths because they are taught in the word of God. And that is why men have died for these truths and suffered for these truths, and defended these truths, is because they're taught in the scriptures. That if you would take the scriptures and and submit yourself to what the scriptures declare, you will see that salvation is of the Lord. It's very contrary to to our human nature. It's not how we like for for salvation to be. In fact, it's It's quite opposite of what we would like it to be. But I don't think there's any denying the truth that you find in the the Word of God concerning uh, the doctrines of God's glorious grace concerning salvation. And so I did want to just sort of introduce this with just a little bit of, of history before we get into... The just the summation of this message. But after the printing press and the translation of Bibles and gospel literature started to be produced, and then you had the Reformation started with Martin Luther, it became harder and harder to silence believers and crush dissent from the Roman Catholic Church. So if people didn't have a Bible of their own and there was no way to distribute literature free and easy... Um, it was very easy for haters of the truth to sort of squash any type of, of uprising. Um, you can read much in the times of the great persecutions where men and women would be um, ran out of town or they would have to find their hiding places in the mountains. I've read stories where um, the men and women um, would, would study the scriptures and memorize the scriptures that they had. So they didn't even have all the scriptures, but they just had portions of it. And they would memorize it. And then everybody in the church would, would memorize the Bible that they had for fear that one of these days it was going to be found and taken away from them and burnt. And so they would literally hide that so they could they could keep that word and pass it on. Well, after the printing press and, and Bibles were being translated into the language of the people... Um, the it, it became harder and harder to restrict, um, to keep people from hearing the truth of the word of God, and so the the gospel truth was being spread even further and further, and and dissent and persecution became hotter and hotter. It reached a fervor in Spain under the reign of Philip II, and Philip II took the powers. Um, for, of the Catholic Church and the Inquisition. So you've heard of the Spanish Inquisition. Well, he took those, the, those powers that he had and, and turned that into a, a heresy hunt to persecute, to kill, to torture people and to convert them to Roman Catholicism. Um, conservative estimates say that under his grand inquisitor, one man um, killed over 2,000 people. And that's the low end of the estimate. Some estimate it's, it's, um, you know, much more than that. But thousands of people under the Spanish Inquisition were tortured, and and maimed, and executed, burned alive, to convert to Roman Catholicism. Well, this led in part to the creation, to the fleeing of faithful Christian people out of that kingdom, running for their lives and and creating um, a kingdom in the Netherlands. There was a a couple of kingdoms that that sprouted out of this. So they fled for their lives and they ended up in modern day Belgium and the Netherlands. So it's between France and Germany on a map right on the coast of the North Sea. And so these people came and they started their own kingdom or a couple of kingdoms there in, those, in that low country. And many of the people who established this were, were believers in Christ. Most, a lot of them, especially in the Netherlands, were what we would call Calvinists. They were, they were uh, Presbyterians, followers of John Calvin, they believed in the doctrines of grace. Others in the government, though, were kind of secular. They, they didn't much care one way or, or the other or had a little bit of leaning uh, towards Catholicism. The Dutch Catholics were there with modern-day Belgium, and they were just there to flee from Philip II. But you have this whole new area of the country that is was founded upon a belief in the truth. Like... Their, their whole society was based upon uh, the truth of the gospel, and, and they came there to flee from Catholic persecution. So that's the scene that you have there in the Netherlands. Well, along comes a theologian who went to Geneva. And it was after John Calvin was gone, and his successor, Theodore Beza, was in charge of Geneva. And he taught this student, and this student um, graduated and, and got a letter of recommendation. He was a good theologian. He was sound in the faith. And he comes back to the Netherlands um, to, to look for a church to pastor. His name was, we know him as Jacob Arminius. And so he studied under, uh, the, there in, in Geneva under Calvin's successor. Well, questions started arising about Jacob Arminius. His doctrine um, was was a little bit off, people thought. And questions would come up, and then he would answer them, and they'd die back down. It seemed like everywhere Jacob Arminius went, he started trouble. He started trouble in Geneva about philosophy, and they got that quieted down. He started trouble back in the Netherlands about some of his doctrine that he was teaching, and he quieted that down. He had married into a powerful family, and his wife's family kind of protected him from getting in too much trouble, but it just seems like everywhere he went, there was controversy. Well, he started preaching through the book of Romans, and he gets to chapter number seven, he started preaching that chapter number seven couldn't have been Paul as a saved man, because a saved man wouldn't sin like that. Well, by the time he gets to Romans chapter 9, he decided that you can't be saved solely by God's grace. That God accepted those who first accepted him. And so Jacob Arminius started saying, saying that he was defending the love of God. He was saying those, those men Calvinists have... Uh, have lowered the love of God. The God the, the, they're the ones that say that God doesn't love people. And so he, he says that he's trying to defend the love of God. Well, as time passes, his views become more and more well-known. People started um, raising the alarm about his doctrines and his teachings. Um, he would always... Sort of, we, he sort of always get out of uh, the, the trouble that he was in, but, but people were aware of what he was teaching. Despite all this, the, the theological university there hired him to be a professor of theology. And so now Jacob Arminius is in this Calvinistic country, in the Calvinistic college, As a professor of theology. And so you can only imagine what what he was teaching there. But he wasn't there very long and he died. Controversy was over, right? He was only there for, I think he only taught for six years and he died. And just one man teaching one um, doctrine, probably not a big deal. Well, that would be a wrong assumption because after he died, he had some followers, which of course would be the Arminians, who um, enjoyed his doctrine and thought Jacob Arminius was telling the truth. And so not only did it not die with um, not only did it not die with him, but it became more popular after his death. Well, the the people who believed the doctrines of grace started fighting against him. And so they called for a national um, conference to come together and, and to uh, fight against this teaching of Arminianism. Um, well, the Arminians got in close with the government because Jacob Arminius also taught that he thought the government should be in charge of the church. And the reason he did that is because he was afraid that he was going to get uh, disciplined out of his church. So he wanted the government in charge of the church because the government was more lenient than the churchmen were. And so the Armenians were, were desirous that the government take over the church. And so now... Not only did you just not have a, doc, a debate between doctrinal people, now the government is getting involved. And so all this is, is like a boiling pot. It's interesting too, I listened to a lecture on Arminius, and the, the man said that in Arminius's library he had a book by uh, Louis de Molina. And de la Molina was a Jesuit priest who thought he figured out a way to solve the problem. There's not a problem really, but in his mind, the problem of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And this view is called today Molinism. What it is, is that Paul Helm described it this way. Given a whole array of possible worlds that God knows, given worlds in which men and women were free in their indeterministic sense, God knows what they would freely choose in every possible circumstance. God has knowledge of all such possible outcomes, and if placed in one set of circumstances, God knows what one person would freely choose and then what he would choose in another set of circumstances for all possible circumstances for all possible people. And so God sort of runs the calculation, so to speak, and says, okay, here's all the possible scenarios that one person could go through in all their life. And then here's all the possible scenarios that this person could, and you know, every person who's ever lived. And then God chose the one that was best for all, the most amount of people. Now, if that just seems strange, don't feel bad, because it is strange. It's a very weird, weird doctrine. It's not that God chooses out of his omniscience his will, what he, pref- what he desires, but, but that God is, wants to preserve so much the human will that he chooses only that which man would have chosen. Well, it's likely that Arminius took this doctrine of this Jesuit priest and, and melded it into his own, own thinking. Well, after he died, the Armenians um, tried to get this petition for the government to protect them from their church. And the petition is called the remonstrance. And so they wrote this remonstrance to the government and summarized what they wanted the um, government to protect them from. Well, the Calvinists wanted to have a meeting to oppose this view, and the politicians tried to stop it because they didn't want, they didn't want trouble anyway. Um, they just hoped it would, would just go away. But it didn't go away. It just kept getting hotter and harder. And in fact, it almost started a war. A war almost broke out um, over the doctrines of grace. That the, the countries and the kingdoms were so fervent over this that, that it couldn't be ignored anymore. In fact, the Arminians began to start riots in the city where the Calvinists were going to, to meet to discuss their remonstrance, um, their, their, their beliefs. Well, Marie, Prince Maurice came through with soldiers to stop the riots, and then he declared, okay, we're going to have this conference, and we're going we're to talk about um, what they've laid out, we're we're going to declare what we believe the truth to be. Louis XIII um, forbade any Frenchman to go to this um, conference. But besides the French, there were representatives all across Europe and, and Britain to come to this conference to discuss uh, the doc, what we know as the doctrines of grace. Well, the, the remonstrance uh, was a this petition was the Arminian view of, of the gospel. And there were five points to that summary. So they said that, number one, election was conditioned upon forcing faith and obedience. So they said that election was based, God chose those he looked into the future and Saul would believe and obey. They said that the, the atonement was universal, that Jesus died for everybody. They said that regeneration enables sinners to do good towards their salvation. In other words, that um, you are saved and you're born again, and that enables you to do good works so you can stay saved. That your good works after you're born again is what keeps you saved. They also taught that grace was resistible, that God would come in saving grace, and the sinner could resist the grace of God. They could resist the Holy Spirit, and uh, and and though the Holy Spirit wants to bring life to the sinner, uh, it all depends on their will. And fifthly, they believed that once a sinner was saved and was born again and was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they could fall away. And lose that salvation. So those are the five points of, of the remonstrance, or the five points of Arminianism. Well, if you heard that and you know the five points of grace, you understand that that it's sort of the, the anti-doctrines of grace. And that's where the, the five points of the doctrines of grace came about, where faithful men were arguing against what these Arminians had had said. So they had it. Election was based upon man's choice. Jesus died for everybody. Um, Sinners do good towards their own salvation. Grace was resistible. And believers may fall away. So the Calvinists responded with five points and five answers to the truth of what the, the gospel says. And so um, these articles that they wrote um, are called the the Canon of Dort because that's the name of the, the town, um, the English uh, rendering of the town anyway. So the Canon of Dort was where these Calvinists answered the Armenians, and um, and, and that's where those five that's where those five points were formulated. But it's not where they started. Now, the, this is the whole reason that I brought this up. That's where this, it was formulated in, the, in five points, but it's not where it started. Because it, what they did was they took what the scriptures said. So you have Jacob Arminius teaching falsehood, and they took what the scriptures said and said, this is what the Bible says. This is what Christians have always believed. This is what is taught in the scriptures. And, and that is what we, we know as the five um, doctrines of grace. Arminians summarized their gospel in five points, and then, and then the Calvinists responded in that, uh, in that Synod of Dort with the, the truth of those, against those five points. But even as Presbyterians will affirm, this is not a truth that was invented by John Calvin nor is it exclusive to those who would call themselves Reformed. This has been taught um, throughout the history history of Christianity. It was taught by Paul. It was taught in the New Testament Scriptures. You can read of the early uh, writings of of Christians a thousand years before Martin Luther and and John Calvin came upon the scene. You can see um, Augustine, um, writing against the the heresy of universalism you can you can see the providence of God and the election of of saints taught and and uh, wrote wrote about and defended throughout um, the the history of of Christianity. So it, it this was not a new system, but it was just, it was just written down in the way that it had not been written down before because of the attack against the truth. Now, oftentimes that's the way that, um, that that's the way that the Lord has ordained things to happen. A heresy will come into the scene and God's people will rise to the challenge to defend that heresy. And so we go to the scriptures and we start uh, studying to, to show how this heresy is wrong and to show how the the truth of the scriptures um, go against that, and then to defend against this heresy and to to lift up the truth, you know we, we sort of formulate definitions and and write out systematic theologies and and, and so forth to defend the truth um, you can read about um, the, the, the heresies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see how because of heresies that entered into the world, um, men rose up to defend the truth. All right, so I wrote an article and submitted it to one of the papers. It should be in one of the papers next month, but it was on did Jesus go to hell and all the implications that come about from the idea that Jesus literally went to hell. Well, I would have never wrote that if I hadn't heard that being preached, and if I hadn't believed that that is a dangerous doctrine that's not found in Scripture. So, I would I would have never uh, I would have never written that or or preached on or any such thing, but I, but I was doing that in response to what I believe to be a, a serious error, and, and that's what happened here: that people began to fight against this error of what we call Arminianism. And so, um, as Arminianism spread, so did the fight against it. And so did the publication of the truth. Well, somewhere around the 1900s, someone um, developed that acronym for the doctrines of grace to make it easier to remember. Um, And I think the earliest place that someone found it was 1905 but that's the, the TULIP acronym. And all this does is puts it in an easily memorable uh, formula that we can, we can think of TULIP and we can uh, remember what this, uh, what is the summation of the doctrines of grace. So one reason I don't call the, the five points of Calvinism is because it's not really the five points of Calvinism. Um, Even Presbyterians will say that there there are a whole lot more than five points to being a Calvinist. There's points about baby baptism, there's points about church uh, polity, there's points about um, the Lord's Supper, there's points about eschatology, there's all kinds of points to being a, a Calvinist. These are... Five points of the doctrines of grace. These are, the, these are five points of um, God's sovereignty and salvation. And so I know what people mean whenever they say that they're a Calvinist, but in, in truth, this, this teaching is far beyond, um, far beyond Calvinism. It is far beyond Presbyterianism, but this is the truth of the gospel that has been believed for 2,000 years. Um, so that TULIP acronym is, is something that you can, they're uh, like hooks to hang your hat on. They're, they're road signs for us to remember um, these points. And so this is just where this comes from and how it became formulated. So um, I hope that from this brief survey, at least his, uh, the historical part of this, that you can understand that, that it's not, coming from a man because I don't know how many times I've talked to people that, that that's their answer well you're just following John Calvin you're just following you're just following um, a man and the Armenians like to say that they get their doctrine from the Bible but we're just following John Calvin we get our five points from John Calvin, but they just follow the Bible. Well, the, the truth of the matter is, the Armenians had their five points from Armenians uh, long before the the Calvinists had five points. Um, so, if if they, if they want to be truthful about it, their five points um, came from a man before the five points of Calvinism were were, were formulated. But anyway, uh, the 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 acronym TULIP, of course, would be total depravity. T is for total depravity. The U is for unconditional election. The L is for limited atonement. The I is for irresistible grace. And the P is for the perseverance and preservation of the saints. And so, uh, briefly stated, it is that man... has has sinned in Adam. All have sinned and are guilty in Adam. And all men are under the curse. All are guilty before God. So that's the T. Not that we're all as bad as we could be, but we're thoroughly ruined by the fall. That there is no good in us. That we're all guilty before God, all under the curse. That when Adam sinned, He thrusts all humanity into into ruin. We might be able to do some good things, but we do good things from sinful hands. You might be a good neighbor, but you're a good neighbor as a rebel against God. And so that's, that's the condition that all men find themselves in under Adam. So how could how could any man be saved if that is such the, if that is the case? If all men are completely ruined in Adam, then how could can any be sinned? Well, it's the grace and the love of God. Now, I believe that God looked, uh, that God um, chose rather chose from fallen humanity those to whom He would be gracious and merciful to. And that because God is loving, because God is gracious, it is by his grace that he chose a people to show mercy unto. Because left to ourselves in Adam, we would have all died. We would have all uh, been destroyed under the curse. And so we go from men totally fallen to God in eternity past, in his love and mercy, showing mercy into sinners and choosing men and women unto salvation. But choosing somebody to save them doesn't save them because you still have the sin problem. Just because God chose a people that he wanted to show mercy to that doesn't take care of the sin problem because we are truly sinners. Sinners. We are truly under sin. We have broken God's law and God's wrath is offended. And so a loving God in his his wisdom and in the covenant of redemption, the loving Father has chosen individuals to save, chosen them unto salvation. And the loving Son has voluntarily uh, willed that he would be our redeemer. And so the father chose unto salvation, and the father gives these men and women that he has chosen unto the son. And the son dies for those whom the father has given. Now, no one could come to Christ of their own because We are not only sinners, but we are dead in our sins. We're not only guilty, but we are unwilling and unable to come to Christ that we'd be saved. And so the father first loved his people. And he chose his people to save. Because if if he hadn't chose to love, none of us certainly would have chose him. To deal with the sin problem, the the father gave those to the son. The son died for their sins. He lived a righteous life for them, and he died for their sins to wash us clean, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the son, in his atonement, died for the sins of of his people. He died for those whom the father gave him. Now, it would be inconsistent if the Son died for all people, even though the Father chose the people into salvation, and the Son uh, died in eternity past came to die for those the Father gave him, for the Son then to die for all men, including those who had already died of God to hell. But no, the Son dies for the people that the Father chose to save. <laughs> But now we have another problem because we're all totally depraved. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, unwilling and unable to come to Christ. Even if we could come to Christ or even if we wanted to, we couldn't do it because of our, because of the spiritual death, because of our spiritual blindness. Well, then um, in God's wisdom the Holy Spirit comes and graciously gives life to uh, the unbeliever. That the Holy Spirit comes in the day of his power through the means of the word of God comes and quickens dead sinners to life. That the Holy Spirit will give life to those who cannot see. Give faith to those who cannot believe. That the Holy Spirit will quicken Dead sinners, or give life, regenerate, born again, sinners. That the, and then draw them by grace to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have a group of humanity that is dead in sins, unwilling and unable to come to Christ. The Father in eternity past, choosing to save some of those individuals. The Son, voluntarily coming to earth to die for those sinners. And then in time, the Holy Spirit coming to those whom the Father has chosen, whom the Son has died for, to, draw, to give them life, to give them faith, to believe and to receive Christ. The Father chose unto salvation. Redemption was accomplished by the Son of God at Calvary, and it is applied by the Holy Spirit um, to those to whom the Father has chosen. And it is such a perfect work of grace. That that those whom the Father chose, he chose from eternity past, that that we should all be before him holy and without blame in love. And that the Father desired, the Father willed, that those that he chose would be with him throughout all eternity. That he would adopt them into his family and they would be with him for, for all eternity. Not just to 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 choose to give some an opportunity to be saved or to give somebody a choice whether they would choose God or not. But the Father desired that His people would be with Him forever and holy and clean and pure. And the Son paid the debt to sin, He paid the sin debt in full and completely. And the righteousness that we have in justification, the righteousness of Christ is is ours. And we have and we are united to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. He indwells his people. He gives them life, eternal life. Jesus says that if we believe upon him, we shall have everlasting life. Now, everlasting doesn't mean temporary. Everlasting doesn't mean for a little while. Everlasting doesn't mean you might have it or you might not. That means everlasting. It means you have it now and you have it forever. And so those whom the Father has chosen, and the Son has died for, and the Spirit has given life, are preserved by the Father. That they will continue to, to walk in, by faith, continually trusting in Christ. And there is no one that can separate us from the love of God. That That all the the charges that could be levied against one of God's people have been satisfied in Christ. There, there is no charge that could be laid against us. There is no, um, there's no loophole that we could slip through. We won't stop believing because the Lord will continue to give us faith, continue to, to keep us in the faith because we are united in Christ. And as we are in Christ and Christ is in the Father and the Spirit is in us, we are preserved eternally because that is what God desired. It was his will. It was the will of the Father that his people would be saved, that he chose. It was the will of the Son that the elect would be saved. It is the will of the Holy Spirit that the elect will be saved finally and fully and forever. It is the will of the triune God that his people would be saved. And so when we come to Christ by faith, we are not coming um, with With hope in our works and trust in what we do, but we are coming to Christ in full assurance of faith that what the Father has chosen the son has died for the spirit has has um, given life to uh, will be accomplished that the good work that the that the spirit has started in us will be accomplished until the end now, if you remember the the, the five points of the, the Arminians election was foreseen faith in people the focus is on the people and their faith that God looked to see what people would do that Jesus died for everybody to give everybody a chance the focus is on what people would do regeneration allows sinners to do good works towards salvation the focus is on the work that people do the grace is resistible that, that the Spirit comes to draw, but whose will is sovereign there? It's not the Spirit's, because the Spirit has one desire, and man has another, and, and man is the one that makes that final choice. And believers may fall away because it rests on them. You see, everything in those five points of Arminianism focus upon man and what man has done. But the doctrines of grace, much like chapter 1 and chapter 2 of, of Ephesians, focus on what God has done. Like in our text, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What God has done. Not what man has done. Not what we have chosen. Not what we have done. But what God has done in us. That that God's wisdom and his righteousness and his sanctification and his redemption and his justification and his election of unto saints, and his atonement and his grace are the means by which we are saved. In John Gill's uh, defense of the the gospel um, for the cause of truth, um, I think is what it's called, he said uh, Pelagianism, which is an ancient heresy, and Arminianism, or the very life and soul of popery. That man has a free will, and man's free will is superior to God's free will. The man's free will is the most important thing. That man is born good and has the choice of whether they will believe or not believe. That's that's Pelagianism. Arminianism is just semi-Pelagianism. It's a a watered-down version of an ancient heresy. But it's the life and soul of of Antichrist. It's the life and soul of the Catholic Church. In other words, is what he was saying—that you can call them whatever you want—but these heresies keep will pop up all throughout the uh, time, and the and the focus is always on man, what man has done and what man will do. But God's truth and God's way of salvation is just like Jonah said. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of you. It's not of what you have done, but what God has done for you. Your hope tonight is not in what you can do for God or or anything such as that. It is what God has already done. Don't have faith in your faith or don't have faith in your believing. Don't rest in what you have done even if it is your faith. But rest and trust and have faith in what Christ has done. Rest in what Jesus has done for you. And that's where a true assurance of your salvation comes from, not by looking at yourself or looking in the mirror, but looking at Christ and trusting what he has done and coming to the full assurance of faith that Christ died for his people and his death was sufficient for us. His death was enough. The blood is enough. His righteousness is enough. His resurrection is enough. Being united to Him is enough. And, and rest and trust in what Christ has done for us. So that's a, that's what we mean by the doctrines of grace. Not a system of men, but the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Holy Scriptures. And so, um, Lord willing, next week, we'll, we'll start diving a little bit deeper into these... Point to the doctrines of grace and be refreshed and renewed in what God has done for us.